All right, take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're in a section where Peter is instructing leaders in the church during a time of persecution. The fact is, is that a church rarely survives inept leaders. You could have a bad pastor, but I think you're still going to need good leaders around him for the church to survive. Uh, We saw last week that when Peter was introducing this topic, he certainly wasn't tooting his own horn. But he was saying, you know, I'm one of you. I'm, I'm a fellow elder, and I am a witness to Christ's suffering. He was really taking a very humble position. And you can listen to last week's message if you want to learn more about that. But let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Would you go before the Lord and ask him to speak to your heart? Father, we want your perspective on leadership, particularly as it applies to the church. We don't claim to know it all. We don't claim to have it down pat. We know that there's room for improvement. We ask that your Holy Spirit would cause us all to be humble servants of yours. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. We believe it's the most important task on the face of the earth. We love you. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, who love your word, who want to hear it, who have an appetite for it, just straight. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would further equip us, grow us, help us to expand the kingdom of God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was thinking on the way in this morning... I've been a pastor here for over 30 years, that I went through a cynical period about the church. This is not a good thing as a pastor. (laughs) But I did not like what I saw in the church. Not our church in particular, but the evangelical church as a whole. It was so politicized. There was just so many things that, in fact, I don't even like even using the word evangelical anymore because it's been hijacked by the culture. It has so many negative connotations. And it wasn't until, I, I honestly cannot remember how I came upon this concept. The idea came into my mind, it may have been somebody else that was telling me this, that the church is the bride of Christ. And you better be careful about calling the bride of Christ ugly. And I mean, that hit me like a pail of cold water. And I I immediately realized, you know, my cynicism is not serving me very well. But I know I'm not alone. Because whether it's people in the church or gone to church, maybe aren't anymore, and certainly a whole slew of non-Christians, they view the church with great cynicism. 
I'm not up here as a person who does not understand that factor. I get it. And the church has a lot of problems, including this one. We're not perfect, but it's the bride of Christ. And we want to honor that. And we want to thank God for what he has done. Not putting our head in the sand to the problems, acknowledging the problems. Um, and all of us could mention leaders that we probably know who are one thing in front of people and another in public. I was chatting with a couple folks this week who've had bad experiences working in Christian organizations or churches where the public persona of the leader was much different than what was displayed behind closed doors. It's sad. But I think one of the things that Peter's doing here is that he's telling us to look under the hood, leaders. Look under the hood. How do you treat people? Now, not when everybody's looking, but how do you really treat people? How do you handle your money? What are your motives in doing this work? These are the kinds of things that Peter brings up for leaders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now you remember that Peter has used three different words to describe the same position, right? These aren't three different positions. There's the shepherd, or sometimes translated pastor, who feeds. There is a person, the, the leader who gives direction as an overseer, and then one who leads with wisdom as an elder. So really three kinds of functions for the same people. Some are vocational, some are not. Now here, shepherd or pastor is used. And it applies, I think, to all the elders that there is a sense of protection, a sense of feeding that takes place. And it implies this job of feeding and, and protecting. Listen to what Paul said to a young pastor that specifies this job when it says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The idea is you want to cut it straight. Let the Word of God speak for itself. Okay, we don't need funny little stories, sappy stories. We need, we need it cut straight. We need people to understand the word and then to put the word in practice. And by doing so, you will benefit, the congregation will benefit. But we know that there are pastors who pride themselves in title and position. Now, I'm not here as a critic. I'm here to say I understand the temptation and none of them you know, have been void in my heart. I've struggled at times more than others, but every person in leadership struggles with some of these things. But it should be noted here 
that the shepherd in the first century was not a part of the upper echelon of society. Being a shepherd was dirty and filthy, okay? They were the lower class in society. And in a day when there are some pastors who love thinking themselves as entrepreneurs, CEOs, or other monikers that, you know, place them in the upwardly mobile, Peter isn't being disrespectful, but descriptive of what pastoring is really about. I've talked to numerous young pastors or people who want to be pastors. And what they think of more often than not is preaching, speaking in front of people. Hey, I can do that. I, you know, I, I, I can be a great pastor because I'm good on the stage. Well, that's an interesting perspective. Now, that's certainly important. But dude, listen, it takes you about 10 or 15 hours to prepare a sermon, at the least. If you have a 50-hour work week, what are you going to do the other 35, 40 hours in the week? And you gotta, you gotta think about that. And being a pastor involves a lot more than that. So if you want a job to where you're going to meet people who are disgruntled, people who are disappointed with you, if you want a job like that, then be a pastor. But if you don't, it's definitely not for you. In fact, I've said it more than once, do anything you can besides pastoring. You want to make sure that God is calling you to that. Now, don't get me wrong. I love what I do. The honest answer is I love 90% of my job. There was that other 10% that, you know, and hopefully it's like your life. You enjoy your job, you enjoy your life, but you know, there's always that little section that you don't. But pastoring is not sitting in your corner office, loving the view, propping your feet up on your desk, and watching golf videos. That's not what pastoring is. Great picture for me was when I was young. I know I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell you again. That's one of the things about being a pastor for over 30 years. You hear my stories over and over and over and over. <laughs> Usher, lead him out of the church right here, okay? <laughs> when I was a youth pastor in St. Louis, I was uh, mopping the floor on a work day, and I was with the founding pastor of this church. Now, he was not the pastor at the time. He'd been two or three pastors removed, but he still attended this church. And we're sitting there mopping, and he looks at me and he goes, Kevin? I go, yeah? He goes, I love mopping floors for Jesus. Wow. I thought, I want to be like that guy. That was just such a great picture for me. And that's a, that, I think, is a model for the shepherd serving. Some dream of the perks, but here was a guy who had joy in serving. Listen, there's no parade for shepherds. When you start pining for your parking spot, uh, you know, to be up front, worried about the initials after your name, want people to notice your publishing exploits, you have forgotten your mandate. 
when Jude talks about false teachers that prey upon the church, listen to the phrase he uses in Jude 12. He says they are shepherds who feed themselves. Shepherds who feed themselves. They are in it for themselves. Notice what Peter says. This is the flock of God. It's not the pastor's flock. This is not my church. This is God's church. It's a group that God has entrusted to the leaders. And the leaders are stewards. God is the owner. We're to do the job that the owner wants. It's a holy calling, a sacred trust given to the leaders by the chief shepherd. And in his care, he protects the sheep from thieves and marauders. That's what the, an original sheep, you know, a shepherd for sheep would do. And a pastor, he rebukes, he warns the sheep. He finds the wayward sheep, cares for the individual. He provides healing from hurts and goes after individual sheep when necessary. He is not a religious lecturer. That is not the job description, but one who knows the sheep through relationships and care. Our passage says the leader exercises oversight. They are to oversee the church to make sure it's consistent with biblical purposes. I really appreciate the elders that we have, that it is their sincere desire to see the biblical mandates for the church taken seriously and put into operation. And we're to do this, the passage says, without compulsion. It's a word that connotes just having an outward pressure or obligation. In other words, it needs to be done willingly without being forced. I don't want to see a show of hands, but how many have done a job in the church feeling forced, obligated, guilty if they didn't do it? That is not good. The culture cannot be that, should not be that. You know, we have a little saying, we have a leadership kind of commitment thing that spells out the, the expectations for leaders. And one of the last statements is, you are hopefully have taken this job uh, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and you are free to leave this job by the leading of the Holy Spirit. There is no ball and chain on people who are leading in the church. That's the way it should be. You do it willingly without being forced. There are external forces and there's internal motivators that apply here. Willingly speaks to an internal motivation. It acknowledges that there's joy in serving, there's purpose in serving, there's rewards for serving, and all that does something to our hearts where it motivates us to serve willingly and being willing to sacrifice. That doesn't mean there's not a sense of responsibility to the leaders, right? 
Paul said, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to you if I do not preach the gospel. Obviously, he had a keen sense of responsibility, but he still chose to fulfill it and not deny it. Paul knew the stakes were high in terms of the gospel. He also said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, it was the love of Christ that controlled him. I, I, if I've heard this once, I've heard it a hundred times, you know. When people disappoint or even if people leave, don't take it personally. Now, wait a minute. It's like saying, you know what? If your wife leaves you, don't take it personally. <laughs> like, no, you love these people. It should hurt because you love these people. To act like it's not going to hurt, all right? You, there, there is a thick skin, I get that. My security is not in others' approval, I get that. But if you love people, their relationships matter. In fact, it bothers me that people can leave so easily. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. Because I dearly care, and we all dearly care for one another. So that idea that you can't take it personally, I just don't get. Maybe you can school me on it. But, um, but there's still a sense of responsibility. There was a wholehearted desire for service, motivated by love, wanting to please a Savior, wanting to benefit the church. I was thinking of Paul's Damascus Road experience. And I was asking, now, wait a minute, Lord. That happened to Paul. Was that, it looked like that was under compulsion. You know, you remember the story? You know, he was blinded, fell to the ground, saw a vision. It's like, if there was ever an external motivator for a service, that was it right? And then I thought of myself. Now, I'm not comparing myself to Paul, but I was in the business world, thought I was, you know, riding it high, and God basically moved me back into ministry and being a pastor when I really didn't have desire to do that. Now, was it without compulsion? Well, I think I could have said no. I could have chosen to do something else. And I think Paul, if he had a hard heart, could have said, no. Nobody had a gun to our head. But God was definitely directing. In addition, thinking of this willingly aspect, there are daily choices that any of us in leadership, I think, have to make. And so your volition is always active taking responsibility for things, choosing things on a daily basis, particularly when it comes to ministry, right? I mean, first, you have to accept the position or the job. And there are certainly times where you might want to quit. And so there's a choice that has to be made. Like I've said, I've enjoyed 90% of pastoring. A couple seasons, particularly dealing with other leaders, were just brutal. And in one, I was looking elsewhere. Had another church call me, said, hey, you know, we'd like to have you as a pastor. I'm like, I'm out of here. And I remember meeting with a good friend of mine who is now deceased. And he goes, Kevin, 
If God is calling you, go for it. But if you're leaving because it's too hard, that's not good enough. And then I told him to shut up and get out of the restaurant. I didn't want to talk to him anymore. <laughs> but he was exactly right. It's exactly right. And I had to come to grips again to the fact that, yes, God did call me. And just because it's difficult, it might be easier going someplace else. But that may not be what God wants. And I think of all that I would have missed if I quit. The people that I wouldn't have met. The blessings that God has given us as a church. And all of us face that. You could, you could apply that in marriage, and you can certainly apply that in, uh, in ministry. So we're all tempted that way, but we have the choice. You can choose whether to view ministry as a stewardship from God or a vehicle for yourself. You choose whether to honor the holiness of God in his word. Or you can choose to capitulate to the culture. Disregard the word of God in social and moral matters. You choose the manner of ministry you'll operate with. Will you be bitter and unforgiving towards those who criticize or towards those who disappoint? You also have to choose to use God's evaluation of ministry or use some other standard, you know, bodies, bucks, and buildings. You can also choose to be an example or be a poser. Managing your image. You choose transparency or obfuscation, especially when you fall short or you fail. These are daily choices. And so when Paul says, uh, or when Peter says you are to serve willingly, it means, I think, daily submitting to the Lord in these things, following his lead. There's certainly a great sense of responsibility most leaders feel. You want to do it right. You don't want to have ulterior motives. And I was in a conversation with another pastor recently, and we discussed this, and we both came to the realization that while, you know, most of the time you can, you can read yourself fairly accurately, but there are sometimes you might say something or do something, and you're not even aware of why you did that or what the motive was. And you can't even understand sometimes when the flesh is in operation or the spirit is. And, you know, you might say something, you think, now, was that pride? So even in my evaluation of myself, I'm reminded of what Paul said. He said, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any other human court. In fact, he said, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, I don't think he's saying you shouldn't be circumspect, but we're limited in our ability, Right? God's assessment is more thorough. It's more important. And it's why I think input from trusted people like a spouse or friends is very important to consider in this regard. So, just as a matter of practice, we need to, I think, check our hearts. 
with times alone with God. The more you can do that, the better. Try to be alert if you're constantly irritated, critical, or angry. And think of what is motivating that. Do you find yourself getting hurt easily and often? Do you find yourself in conflicts with others often? I want to have regular times with people that can ask me tough questions. Peter says, we serve as God would have us serve. This means not only that we are serving, but the manner or how we are serving. We do so eagerly. Eagerly speaks to our enthusiasm and energy. We don't fake it till we make it. But we come face to face with our stewardship before a holy God and realize the privilege of service. Yes, it can be difficult. Yes, there are attacks. And there are attacks from the evil one. I have seen clear demonic involvement against people in our church, against me. And in Peter's case, he was leading through a maze of suffering. I mean, other Christians being killed, tortured, jailed. There will be times of hardship. But he's describing this long haul, big picture tone of shepherding. And so avoid cynicism. Avoid denigrating those who don't agree with you or aren't doing the things you think they should do. See everyone made in the image of God, even those who oppose you. Janet and I have really tried hard with this. And I think of that verse that Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes about a, a little bird in your bedchamber who takes it and drops it somewhere else, the, the conversation you have. And so even amongst ourselves, between me and my wife, not to make it a practice to run other people down. And that if I am hurt or you feel critical, you know what that is an opportunity to do? Is you pray for them. You thank God for them being in your life and whatever it is that God can teach you through that. Listen, I know it's easy. And I know there have to be frank discussions. But do it for the sake of having the love of Christ enlarged in your heart. So I can choose how I respond. Right? I can't control how people react. I've also said to people in our church, I can't control that somebody isn't going to say a stupid thing to you. It just happens, right? Hopefully, the older we get, the less of that we do. It's just going to happen. But I can control what my reaction is, what my perspective is. I can choose how I respond and whether my heart is joyful and accepting the stewardship of service as a privilege. This is a spirit-induced eagerness. And that, I think that helps servants endure. Now comes the part that everybody loves to talk about in church, and that is money. One of the ways a leader's heart is tainted 
is to make money the main thing. To view church merely as a business and a vehicle for just personal benefit misses the mark. Yes, 1 Timothy 5 does say to be generous to those who take on church leadership as a vocation, but it also says, don't put somebody in leadership who is a lover of money. A lover of money. And Peter says, shameful gain. And you're like, how do you do that? I mean, how do you look inside somebody's heart and see that? Well, I don't think he's saying, you know, make a judgment without evidence. But I don't think it's as nearly as impossible as we might think it is. In other words, does this person exhibit generosity with others? Does this person live within their own means? Is this person always bragging about their possessions or their money? Is this person always pining for a position or more money? Does this person do business deals to take advantage of others? And if they own a business, how do they treat their employees? Is this person involved in schemes for quick money, like gambling? Or does business always win out on their priorities so that family and serving others always gets the short end of the stick? The issue is not perfection, but is the weight of the evidence towards loving money or service to God. Now we have to be careful here because often I, I've seen this done more than once where people are judging others just based on what they perceive as their income. In other words, if somebody has a nicer house than me, a better car than me, then they must be a lover of money. And that is not the case. I was sharing a story in the first service. We bought our home in 1985, and I, I don't mind telling you this now. You know, we don't live in that house now. But we bought it new for $65,000. I only have to tell you that because it was not extravagant. It was very middle of the road. We liked it, okay? But that's, that's what it was. So somebody came over to our house from the church. Hope he's not in the audience. And he said, as he walked in the house... First time over our house. I cannot believe you live in a house like this. And for the next five minutes started castigating that like this house is so huge. It's three bedrooms, two baths, all right? Um, can't believe you live in this house. Now this guy struggled with employment, didn't have a lot of money, but viewed us as, you know, just way out of line. And I said, well, first of all, dude, uh, we bought this house before I was a pastor. So it was with that money. And we lived in that house for over 30 years. And we loved the house, uh, but it certainly, I didn't think it was because we were trying to be, you know, better than the Joneses or whatever. It's not uncommon for us to judge somebody. You know, oh, you know what? They have a boat. Or they drive such and such. That's a Lexus. Oh, you know they're lovers. We do this all the time. We've got, we've got to be very, very careful. 
not to judge people's hearts, just based on that. Now, to be honest, I also realize that as a pastor, I have to be conscious of the way that people judge those things, right? I was sharing with somebody the other day that um, my favorite car is a Mercedes 450SL, the old ones, like 1980 or something. I just think they are so cool, very sleek, very simple. And you can get one for about 10 or 15,000, so you could, you could afford one, but I could never drive a Mercedes. I just know that that would be a problem for so many people, even though it's very affordable, right? But I just know it would just cause too many problems with people to do such a thing. Um, now, you may think I'm being silly in that, but I don't want those kinds of things to get in the way of the gospel. I don't want that to get in the way of my job as a pastor. So I can easily drive a Rolls instead of the Mercedes. So, you know, we're good. All right, not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. All right, this verse goes to the method of our ministry. The idea here is there's not to be any browbeating, no whip-cracking, intimidation. In fact, if some in leadership have a self-image that they need reinforced with their authoritarianism. I mean, when, when you have to remind others all the time of who is boss, and you have to remind others that they need to be loyal to the boss, that leader's on the wrong road. I've heard church leaders say to one another, you are not going to make it without me. Or, it is my job to sit on you. Domineering over people is not leading. When one has to use harshness or excessive use of authority, always being high-handed, yelling at their staff, belittling, on a, that it's a regular routine and how they relate to their people. This is not shepherding. And I hate to blow others' bubbles, but it doesn't matter how good you are up on a stage, how well you can speak. Shepherding with humility has to be a priority. How you deal with people. You know how many times I have heard other pastors say, I'm just not good with people. Dude, you are in the wrong job. Because people is the job. I'm a mechanic. I hate tools. I'm no good at them. But I'm a mechanic. Right. So how a pastor is behind the scenes Dealing with conflict, handling staff, it's to be an example to others in how you lead. Listen, there's always going to be areas of improvement. There'll always be problems to deal with. But can these be done with care and grace? Is there a, a sensitivity to people's needs, affection for people, enthusiastic affirmation? The style of leadership matters. 
I think Jesus gives a kind of topsy-turvy approach to leadership when he said this to the disciples. He called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. For even, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, when a leader understands that he or she serves those that they lead, that they exist to help them excel, they exist to help the organization be better, then I think they understand the intent of Jesus' words. Listen, a pastor cannot be consumed with his social media profile or managing an image. Our first priority is being a servant. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the designation of Jesus as the chief shepherd reminds the leaders that they are first servants, not autocrats. Their positions of leadership are a responsibility, an opportunity to serve the Lord, not an opportunity to serve themselves. And as shepherds, they serve under the chief shepherd, Jesus, doing his will rather than others. So we are accountable to God for how we manage the household of God. So there's an expectation that one day you'll be held accountable for this before the Lord. That's why James said, teachers shall incur a stricter judgment. Now we're all going to face a judgment. Not for our sin, if we're Christians, that's been forgiven, paid for by Jesus, but in terms of rewards. Every word, motive, action, that is daunting and especially for teachers. If you're up, in, up front leading the people of God, God will hold you accountable for that. That's sobering. So you want to be found faithful with the right attitude and manner. 1 Peter 5.1 adds the notion of suffering and then comes glory, implying that those who serve well now are going to receive a good reward later. And here in verse 4, it's said again, um, Peter did not expect leaders to sacrifice with no thought of reward. He reminded them that for their labors for others, there's going to be great reward and joy. That is the grace of God in operation, saying it's going to be worth it. He will reward those who are faithful in ministry. What kind of reward? Well, let me ask you this. Okay, how many of you can name maybe a handful of winners in the winter or summer Olympics? I couldn't, all right? I could maybe name you one or two, but they're fading rewards. What about the servant of Christ? It is unfading and glorious. How about an award ceremony that never ends, never ceases. 
How about a crown that never loses its luster? It goes on forever and ever. That is serving Christ faithfully. And God has seen fit to reward faithful servants with a crown of unfading glory. How awesome is that? He will not forget. He sees every act of faithfulness. Wow. So there's nothing wrong with a faithful servant looking forward to that. And our job description is to be a servant. I read recently a person's take on the job descriptions for a church staff. Here's one. The first one is the pastor. Now, this is not who the pastor is. This just is really dealing with the expectations. It says, a pastor able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. More powerful than a locomotive, faster than a speeding bullet, walks on water, makes policy with God. Minister of Education, able to leap short buildings in a single bound. As powerful as a switch engine, just as fast as a speeding bullet, walks on water if the sea is calm and talks with God. A minister of music, leaps short buildings with a running start, almost as powerful as a switch engine, faster than a speeding BB, walks on water if he knows where the stumps are, and is occasionally addressed by God. Minister of Youth, runs into small buildings, <laughs> recognizes locomotives two out of three times, <laughs> uses a squirt gun, knows how to use the water fountain, and mumbles to himself. <laughs> Church Secretary, lifts buildings to walk under them, kicks locomotives off the track, catches speeding bullets in her teeth, freezes water with a single glance, and when God speaks, she says, may I ask who's calling? I would just end it to say that all leaders also need to have a good sense of humor. It helps us endure. Let's go before the Lord in prayer.